Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. I'm Dotson Adibo. I'm Nikki Bandini. And I'm Lars Watson. So on today's edition, we're talking about how Chelsea schooled City in the Champions League final. Yes, we have to do that. And also about the swap shop, as it looks, uh, of the top coaches in the European leagues continue. Where, where to next for European football? So, should we first of all cast our minds back to what was, you know, in retrospect, a really exciting Champions League final, don't you think, Nikki? It does feel like casting the mind back now, doesn't it? It's it's a few days ago and I feel like football has already moved on at such a pace. But it was, it was a, a really compelling Champions League final. I think there were some things that slightly drew away from the drama of it, obviously, um, when Kevin De Bruyne went off, that was a, a huge shame for him individually. It was a huge shame for the spectacle because I think that City, who were already struggling at that point, needed inspiration from somewhere. And it certainly wouldn't have been the first time when he was able to produce something like that. But I think with the sort of um, time and distance from it, you only get, or I only get at least, more of a um, feeling of this game, more of a memory of this game as being just another chapter in this unfortunate and growing history of Pep Guardiola outthinking himself when he least needs to outthink himself. And maybe that's being unfair because, as has been pointed out, Chelsea had beaten Man City a couple of times already in not much more than a month before this, right? So you've got that thought in your mind. You've got that um, that fear that the same thing could happen to you again if you do the same thing. But when you look at their progress through this Champions League knockout stage, you look at the fact that the last five games um, leading up to the final, they basically ran with almost exactly the same team, only small changes like Rodrigo Fernandinho being uh, brought in or out, the front half of the team looking exactly the same. And then you get to the final and that's the moment when you go, do you know what? Tear all that up. We've finally got to the final. We've done it right. So let's do something completely different. It, it, it's completely strange. Uh, well, it's not strange because it's Guardiola and it's happened before. And I do feel like it's one of those games where I'm hoping in, in years to come, when these guys are a bit older, maybe they're retired, they do autobiographies and stuff, we'll get like the real story of how people felt when they got the team. It's possible that Guardiola has so much credit in the bank with them that they just think, yeah, I can do whatever and it'll be fine because it usually is. But there must have been an element of when they, he read out the team and they were told that, you know, they've played 60 games so far this season and in 59 of them, either Fernandinho and Rodri has played a holding midfielder. But for this final, the one everything they've done over the last few years have, have led up to is deciding I'm going to stick my top scorer at holding midfield. There must have been a sense of, oh God, he's done it again. Because that's what we all felt. Mm. And you, I, I know that... He, the funny thing about Guardiola is that, you know, the, the online discourse about him, you have a very strange little enclave of people who are just desperate to, to paint him as this fraud, this, this snake oil salesman who's never done anything good. And like, honestly, if you've watched any football in the last 10, 15 years and you believe that, you're basically an idiot. <laughs> uh, but, but, but there's also people who will just blindly defend everything he does and says he cannot do anything wrong because he's so smart, which is also a bit daft. It, you, you must, it, it isn't a lazy narrative to say that in so many of these games, when he's come on he has made unusual decisions. I've, I've went through them all. I mean, I'm, that's how much as a saddo I am. I went through every sort of tie where his teams have gone out of the Champions League since 2011, and in most of them, 
and, and I mean, some of them are home and away ties, but in most of them, in the pivotal game, there was an unusual sort of uh, Rafinha playing as a left-sided centre half in a back three at Bayern, or sort of Fernandinho playing at left back for Man City against Monaco. I mean, in, all, in almost all of them, there is at least one sort of squad selection that's not. You know, he's such a logical guy. I'm sure it makes sense in his head. And if he was here, he would point to a tactics board and explain to us exactly why he did this. But decisions that are different, decisions that are not what the team was used to doing that season, decisions that are not what uh, the team's used to doing. And I think Tuchel had a great quote in the aftermath of the game uh, where he said, uh, as a general rule, uh, the more tension is on, the more decisive character of the game, the less new information we give meant in regards to the player and I think that's very sensible in a game like this the player's got so much going on uh, mentally uh, it's such a big occasion I don't that cannot be the right point to suddenly drop on them a new sort of tactical tweak and and I really wonder what the players thought when they saw good lord he has done this again and and this season has been a triumph for Guardiola because it's been a difficult year. Uh, it's been particularly difficult, I think, for teams that play very high-pressing football because there's been less resting time than usual. So he has clearly adjusted his approach in the Premier League. They press less. You've even had some games where they've kind of sat back. You know, there was one game against United where they were quite happy to let the other team have the ball, which we've never seen from Guardiola, either at City or anywhere else. So he's adjusted his method to the circumstances. Um, and that's... And they They've played slightly more balanced. They've conceded fewer goals on the counter. You know, Stones and Diaz has looked really good, partially because Diaz is great, but also because they've had more protection. And one of the things that's been, other things that's been really successful is Gundogan playing in a more advanced role, making these runs into the box. He scored a bunch of goals for them. Now, then you get to the Champions League, the culmination of all of this, and you decide, well, these things are worked really well for me this season. I'm going to throw that in the bin. And I swear, like again, he knows more about this than we do. He's really intelligent. He thinks deeply about the game. Like I want to add all these caveats because like backseat tacticing is not my favorite sort of genre of podcasting um so we've got to be self-aware enough to add that to the mix here and if he was here at this empty chair we have one empty chair on the table we had three <laughs> chairs one empty if he was sat there he would like guys guys and he would like point to the board and say we did this because that and i'm sure he had a th- an idea but i just think introducing that in a Champions League final against a team as accomplished and as well-structured and as well-drilled as Tuchel's Chelsea have been, it doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. I'll tell you, if he was sat in that empty chair, Nicky, he'd be pissed off that, you know, we could even be uh, questioning his micromanagement apart from anything else. And he'd probably ask, well, he probably wouldn't ask, but I imagine this was a game of two coaches. It's not just about his failings, if you like, quote-unquote failings, because that's open to discussion as well. But it's also about the opposition's coach, Thomas Tuchel. To what extent did he play a role in Chelsea winning? Oh, I I think it's impossible to to overstate almost because he wasn't even the manager at the start of the season and things were going very differently. I think it's fascinating, fascinating that Chelsea, who have ever since um, Abramovich came in and spent all of this money. And at the beginning, there was this big idea that we're going to do it this way. And we've got Mourinho and and here's the plan. The two times they've actually managed to do this have been when they've torn up the plan (laughs) mid-season and gone, let's do something different. Mm. Um, And there's loads with Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea that I feel like we don't know yet. Bear in mind that when Di Matteo went and had uh, his adventure, it didn't last, right? Like thing, things change and there will be someone, um, and there'll, there'll be a whole different context next season and who knows what it will be. But I think he gets 
so much credit, not just for this game. And I think what's interesting about this game exactly as um, Lars said, is that he didn't didn't actually reinvent anything. He just stuck to his guns. He, he had a, a confidence in, in the system that he had. I thought Chelsea played pretty cautiously. That was the same formation as always, but the, the wing backs were, were very deep. So you had effectively a back five. You put, you kind of surrendered the, the wings to, to City. And I think that was probably the biggest gamble that Tuchel made was um, just trusting his his two wing backs to sit deep and to deal with um, City's, uh, City's wingers basically on their own, on, on an island, because the idea for Chelsea was always going to go through the middle of the pitch, to go through um, Kante and Jorginho and, and that was was the plan and I think that it relied on all sorts of individual elements to work as well as it did it relied on um, Rudiger doing a great job of stepping out and and being aggressive with Bernardo Silva it, it relied on um, the movement um, of, of the forwards because actually what was fascinating was that even though Chelsea sat and invited City onto them when they did attack they seemed to always have the space to work with which is exactly what City didn't have um, I think he's he's done sort of great work in general. Um, you can't sort of, I think what I'm sort of slightly talking my way around and trying to avoid is I don't think you get to say, oh, well, Tuchel, better manager than Guardiola because Guardiola won the league and he did it really confidently. He was the best manager in England. But I do think that Tuchel, having already beaten him before this, got into his head mm, and that's mm, probably mm. the sort of greatest success out of all of this is that Tuchel just got into Guardiola's thinking in such a way that Guardiola did go oh what am I going to do on this final oh, I'll change everything when he didn't necessarily need to I, I think that's a really good point and I mean I should double check this but I think in the first game Guardiola played both Rodri and Fernandinho didn't he and then he played only one of them and then he played none of them and they lost all of those three <laughs> games I guess maybe maybe it doesn't make that much of a difference but I also it just strikes me that Tuchel um, the thing that really gets me with what he's done after taking over Chelsea is just how little time he's had to work with the team because mm. uh, this is something foreign coaches often struggle with when they come to England is because there is the schedule is a bit more packed here you know you've got two cup competitions if you're in the Champions League you've got to deal with all that and there's very few weeks where you actually get to spend a week with the team if you're in charge of a top team uh, and it's something quite a few coaches have remarked on saying this is hard because we want to work on tactics and stuff and there's no time and of course this season there's even less time than usual there's been no time at all yet somehow if you look at Chelsea now uh, whatever you think of the Lampard area era where you think Lampard is good or Lampard is bad I understand that's quite a divisive topic in this country um they are completely opposite now. They're so controlled. They're so structured. Everyone knows exactly where to be. And there are some games where they've been almost a little bit too uh, cautious and controlled in the last few weeks where you would like to see them commit more men forward, maybe. Uh, but they've been the opposite under Lampard. Even in the games where it worked under Lampard, it was a little bit chaotic and people just kind of running around. And that's why they kept conceding so many goals on the counter because suddenly there was just no one in midfield because everyone had run off. Like, I mean, th- th- now it's so structured. And he's done that for, in spite of having no time to work on it whatsoever. I think it's extraordinary and, and I think he's been rewarded for big big decisions that he made early on like if you look at this game in the second half the back three was Aspilicueta, uh, Christensen and Rudiger like none of those were in favour with, with Lampard like even Aspilicueta was on the bench for a long time uh, Christensen clearly was struggling and, and he had got on the wrong side of Rudiger it seems but, but Tuchel immediately identified certainly Rudiger and Aspilicueta those big personalities experienced guys like you got to be in my team uh, he decided to put a lot of faith in Timo Werner even though he misses these sort of slightly ridiculous chances he's always a, he's he's been 
repaying that faith in other ways because even if he doesn't score the fact that he has that pace in behind makes him like a constant sort of menace uh, he's given uh, he's given much more faith to Kai Havertz uh, than before and these are not like obvious decisions to make uh, th- these are things that he's gone in and he's signed pretty early okay this is how I have to do it and it was interesting to me how it felt like a lot of those big decisions came came home to roost in a positive way in this in this final yeah well Havertz for certain was so essential and you think that could easily have been Pulisic another manager another um, moment certainly would have would have not necessarily started him and I think that interaction between Werner and, and Havertz was critical actually up front I think Werner as you say, misses chances, but he also creates space for everybody. He, his running is, is, I think this is one of those conversations that we have over and over again in, in football and, and certainly European football. But in my head, I'm going back to even when I was um, a lot younger and people used to say it about Andy Cole missing chances. And first of all, Andy Cole scored a <laughs> goals. Yeah. But yes, he missed some chances. And you think, you miss a lot of chances because you get yourself in position to score goals. And also... Andy Cole's teams keep winning because he's doing a good job for the team by being the guy who gets in those spaces. We've had that debate quite a few times about Cavani over the years, haven't we? Yeah. Because he misses a few chances because his movement is unbelievable. So he gets to so many opportunities. Uh, but yeah, I think with Werner, I think with fast players who know how to use their pace, they will always have a value to your team, even if they miss the odd chance, because they they give the opponent a lot of things to worry about just by being there. It's like even something that goes back to even like Theo Walcott. When he was playing for England and for Arsenal like even if he was not a perfect footballer and still isn't a perfect footballer when he was younger when he was so rapid you can just stick him there and whatever he does on the field you give the opponent a problem Mm. When Nicky mentioned how uh, Thomas Tuchel has gotten into Pep Guardiola's head it just resonated with me so much because everybody will be familiar with how something gets in or somebody gets into your head but it has to manifest itself on the pitch as well and I wonder whether Tuchel got into Guardiola's head through the prism of this uh, incredible footballer but certainly a person that you throw on the pitch to break up the other person's or the opponent's uh, tactics and their moves is N'Golo Kante. Mm. I I wonder if that is the manifestation of getting into the head of Pep Guardiola. Getting into the head, getting under the feet. I mean, Kante is just a wonderful footballer. I I sort of feel like he's... um, one of those players where unfortunately I'm not sure even what I have new to say about him because he's just been brilliant under different managers. He's been probably the most essential component of that Chelsea team under the last three managers, four managers. Mm. I'm trying to count back now with all the managers Chelsea have had. He's He's been utterly reliable even when there was this sort of great... Um, crisis that seemed to be going on for a lot of the English media about um, Sarri being there and was he using Kante right Kante was still playing really well um, and also that was an incredibly stupid narrative like I'm, I'm sorry but like this is one of my sort of bugbears now I think all these weirdos who are like oh he must play in the Makalili role like, you must <laughs> yes. stick him in front of the defence yeah. and, and anywhere else is silly well, what are you talking about like if you look at Kante like his biggest strength I think still even if physically maybe I mean he's 30 now he isn't quite where he was five years ago but his ability to cover grass like and go all around the field and break up 
play. You don't want him sitting in front of the defense. You want him roaming around. And, you know, all the stuff he plays for three people. Yes, he can. He can't do that if he's, like, stuck sitting in front of the back four. Like, you want his energy. Yeah. You want him. And if you're a team like under Sarri and now under Tuchel who want to win the ball high up in the field most of the time, you want him pressing. You want him being engaged. Like, this, he has to be a holding midfielder. Like, this is nonsense. But I think that's definitely what... Um what Guardiola's idea was for this game, which, as we've said, didn't really work, was to build what effectively was going to be a four-player cage around those two, um, Kante and Jorginho. And I think the complementing skill sets of those two players, um, the the Kante who is so all action, so capable of, of covering grass, as Lars just said, so capable of, of physically imposing himself. And then Jorginho, who also is perfectly capable at fighting those battles and winning the ball but perhaps um is is more the guy who puts his foot on the ball and and sees the pass and and distributes from there i think that tandem has been so perfect for chelsea and allows you to play what was effectively a 5-2-3 which is not on paper the most balanced formation I still can't get my head over the declaration from, or the revelation from Lash that uh, Kante is 30 years old. Still feels like a teenager in love to me. But we praise Man City for being such a, a well-run club and having such a clear identity, whereas Chelsea seem to be muddling through things and getting results. How can that be? Is there a comparison in any of the European leagues with the Chelsea, which would be the Chelsea in Italy, for example? It puts me in mind of, I think, I don't know if this conversation happens in other countries in the same way. It, it certainly doesn't seem to be as sort of specifically repeated in um, in England. But in Italy, I feel like we're always talking about managers as either um, pragmatists or philosophers. Like either you're an ideologue with some idea of your game and how you think you're supposed to play football, or you're a pragmatist. So an example of a pragmatist might be Max Allegri, who just won at Juventus. And when people, even though he had a tactics app, by the way, um, <laughs> when when people sort of would needle him about tactics, he'd go, look, you know, at the end of a basketball game, what do, what do teams do? They give the ball to LeBron because that's what you do. You give it to your best player. So don't worry so much about tactics. And then at the other end, you might have someone like Maurizio Sarri, who had Sarri ball as it became in England, Sarismo as it was in Italy, like an idea, like, oh, we're going to play this way. Or or even Conte, actually. Conte is a great example because he has such specific manoeuvres in the way he likes his teams to play. They're really drilled to the detail. And I was thinking when Lars said that, um, that quote from Tuchel at the end of the game about in the biggest games, you need to give players least to think about. You need to let them do what they know how to do. And actually it, it um, took me back. I think I might even have, I probably have said this at some point on a, on the continent podcast before, but when I went to talk to um, Renzo Olivieri, who's the man in charge of the manager's school in Italy, Coverciano coaching school, he said that in modern football, you sort of need to uh, train players more, less in systems and more in, um, in core principles so like when you get the ball in in these situations like what is your brain going to do you basically have the choice you know keep the ball yourself send it on to someone else but it's much more complicated than that in real time and it seems like Tuchel is much more one of those managers who is willing to trust his players to 
have their you know have their their own idea their their own sort of confidence in their core principles whereas Guardiola in these moments at least seems to get very much lost in the philosophy of it and I think that conversation happens a lot in Italy about whether or not someone is a philosopher and they have that idea or if they're willing to be pragmatic and say listen let the footballers be good footballers Kai Havertz who is around Aderson and Havertz scores for Chelsea it's a royal blue moment I think Nikki has led us into what actually is the big question going looking forward to the next season in European football where we see coaches being the not, not the matinee idols it will never be that but certainly the most important factors in whatever may develop in European football because they're moving around from one club to another you don't know um, who's going to or how this will affect the next season mm. at all but if if Nicky is correct in that you know um, that, that binary situation between the pragmatist coaches and the philosophers mm. who who which is the coaches um, that you think we should be keeping an eye on uh, who have moved very recently Lush? Keeping an eye on hmm I, I wonder I think if if we agree that there is a sort of uh, sort of a split there I wonder if we're heading into slightly choppy waters for some of the philosophers uh, because what we're seeing this summer is that there are a lot of clubs around who who maybe feel like they need to clear out and rebuild because they're in a, it's a bit of a mess but who can afford neither I mean we're in this sort of I don't remember this ever happening before but the football economy in general, is contracting a little bit. Uh, the wages are not going up. Uh, clubs are trying to cut costs. And you have a lot of big clubs who are saddled with contracts they would dearly like to get rid of. So actually having clear-outs are difficult because you can't get rid of people. And if you do, you're going to have to keep paying them quite often. Uh, so that's really tricky. Uh, whereas let not, let's not even get started on signing the players you want. I mean, because there isn't money at the moment. And I think that's a slightly difficult situation to be a philosopher in because I think a lot of these guys who have like you know I have my I want to play football just so often means that you need a certain types of players and and I know you know Maurizio Sarri once said that like the transfer market is the last refuge of, of bad coaches but I mean I'm not sure that's true for someone like him for instance who has like I want this and this and this mm-hmm. uh, I I think I think it's interesting with uh, Allegri going back to Juventus feels like an admission of defeat from Juventus saying all this sort of stuff we want sorry because we want nicer for football and we want Pirlo because he looks good in a suit like they've realised actually we just need a smart coach who can win games for us uh, I think the sort of lifestyle and entertainment uh, brand of it is uh, it feels to me like an admission of defeat a little bit whereas actually uh, you know, uh, the Real Madrid casting their lonely eyes to, to to Ancelotti. There's an element there as well of thinking we're not going to have an ideal squad next season. Like Bale might still be here. Like it might not be possible to get rid of him. We we need to figure out what to do with Hazard. I mean, there's something. There are a lot of things that aren't going to look ideal in our squad because we can't afford to do the things we'd like to do. So what we want then is a sort of a, an experienced manager who's been here, who's done that, who's, Safe a, pair of hands. who's a bit of a chilled out guy, who's not going to like go mad contest style over the fact that he doesn't have exactly the players he wants, and who's just going to like arch his eyebrow 
know, and just go, eh, I'll figure it out. Um, I, I, I wonder if it's if we're going into a period now where a lot of clubs will look at these sort of pragmatists who will just work with what they have and they think, yeah, that's that's probably where we want to be. Ancelotti has got the most famous arched eyebrow in the business, I think it's fair uh, to say. But will, will he steady the ship at Madrid? Can you see that happening? It's, you know, I, I, an, an analogy has come into my head, which in Italy, instead of talking about the managerial men, men, merry-go-round they have the valse um, of the benches which is a waltz of the benches the waltz basically. of the benches I like <laughs> and I was just thinking what's actually it feels like is happening in European football is that as this waltz is going on a lot of people who've sort of perhaps feel like they've lost the rhythm of their dance recently are looking for their old partners they're looking um, for the one who they yes. can hold to and be That's like right Tennessee you're the one waltz, who can show you know me that. how to do it yeah, yeah. Um, and that's definitely what's happened at Juventus. Gosh, Juventus, it's wild when you think that when Allegri left two years ago, it was, I've never seen a departure of a manager like it. They had a press conference where he's there with Agnelli and they're sort of presenting him with things and the whole team is there to clap <laughs> You're the manager, so yeah. you're the one firing him basically. Yeah. But instead <laughs> yes. of sort of being like a year You've off, done so well. <laughs> it's like a, an award ceremony. And yes, um, going back to him is very much... Funnily enough, because he is, I think, the arch example of of effective pragmatism in Italian football for Juventus as a club. This is embracing their philosophy again, because actually Juventus' philosophy has always been just win, baby. You know, it's always been just win. And Allegri, as the chief pragmatist, is all about that. He doesn't care how you do it. He just wants to win. And I think that partnership is very natural. And I think for... Ancelotti at Real Madrid, it is a similar um, idea that's going on. I don't know if it feels like it's going to be as easy and comfortable a fit as Allegri and Juventus, which is so recent and which he really is stepping back into shoes that um, basically are still his old shoes. Ancelotti has been away for a while and the club that he comes back to is not in the same place that it was at all when he left. And there is this great oppressive financial concern hanging over them having said all of that do I think that Ancelotti could be quite a um, level-headed calm figure to be present to be in front of the cameras to be talking to the players while things are turbulent behind the scenes as a counterpoint to (laughs) <laughs> the increasingly dramatic Florentino Perez show that we've seen over the last six months with the Super League and everything else, I think that makes a heap of sense as well. But I, I do, as an aside, want to add. I mean, this is incredibly funny. Like the the, the I, mean, I, I can't do any of these pods without you know Lamella style raking some studs down the thigh of this nonsense of the Super League because uh, we just had now. You know, Frontino Perez saying earlier a few weeks ago, like, oh, if we don't do this Super League, we will all go bankrupt and the financial model is completely broken. And then the sort of details of the David Alaba deal start emerging, which is so funny. Like, because according to, you know, uh, our, our mutual acquaintance, Rafa Honigstein, Bayern was offering David Alaba uh, 16 million euros a year. That was their offer, like 16 million. But Alaba, Alaba was like, no, no, I want more, I want more. So so what do you, uh, smart business people you two are, what do you think Real Madrid offer as a counter? Like, you know, Bayern are offering 16, 
How, 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 what do we offer to counter this? <laughs> Let me tell you, they offer 25 million a year. <laughs> they went straight from 16 to 25. Wow. Like, I would love, I, I would love to try to sell a house to Florentina Perez. Like, my God. <laughs> European super. Is, is there any wonder why these people are in financial trouble? Like, it's incredibly funny. But they do have similar problems to deal with. All these managers, mm-hmm. by the way, not just Ancelotti, Ancelotti and Allegri, but uh, they have the problem, which you alluded to earlier on, Larch, which is you've got some excess baggage in the squad. And in Juventus, I'd have thought the excess baggage, quote unquote, uh, would be the one and only Cristiano Ronaldo. Ooh, provocative. I like it. <laughs> I, I think he's certainly a, a big question for Juventus. And... I think that if any manager was going to be able to get the most out of Ronaldo for one more year, I think it probably is Allegri. I think he's a manager again who kind of is at peace with this idea that in the end you just give the ball to your star player and I think that Ronaldo could could do that for him. Um, whereas certainly previously there was this great ambiguity for Pirtler as a rookie manager himself, but this great ambiguity of am I trying to create a new youth movement with Federico Chiesa, with Kulisevsky, with all of these young, interesting players, or am I trying to win the Champions League with um, Ronaldo? I think those are the sorts of problems that Allegri will just roll with and say, well, you know, we've got him, give him the ball when we need to. Yeah, and it'll be one more year of Ronaldo, right? Because there's no way you get him off the wages. That's like, no one's going to, you know, unless he takes a big wage cut, Aguero style, but you don't really see that happening either, do you? I, I think that's exactly the issue. Like, who else is going to come and, 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 and help you out with him? I think there are clubs who would who would take him, certainly, mm. but clubs who would take him on his current salary, which is more than three times what anyone else at Juventus earns. Um, who is it be? Paris Saint-Germain, maybe. maybe. Could be um, quite a combustible scenario, but sure, I could see them having the money. Um, the big Spanish clubs don't have the money. I don't think the English clubs would spend that money, even if they could notionally raise it. Where else is he going to go? I don't think he's ready to go into semi-retirement and and head off to um, Qatar or wherever else it would be. Yeah, and I don't think... Again, again, he makes so much more money than the best paid player in MLS. I don't know how. I mean, they'd have to make, yeah. And there's, no, I believe, also a legal, a legal issue on that side of the Atlantic that he might want to stay clear of. not going to the MLS. There are also Ronaldo. these sort of questions. China that, might have been a thing, but they're not doing that anymore. Yeah. So, But there are these questions that only he can answer, which is, what does he still want from his career? Because there's a romantic move he could make back to sporting, who obviously mm. can't pay him that money, but where he could go back and and have an end career there that'd be beautiful maybe he would even like to go back to Manchester and do something there but that would be interesting it's all about money it's so. all about whether he wants to take a wage cut yeah. is it yeah. all uh, about money yeah but that's like what are you saying there are a ton of clubs who would be happy to have him in their team yeah but he would have to take him out of a wage cut for it to happen so it is all about money in the end but you mentioned Nicky that Allegri would just see him as the best player in the team and say give the ball to um to Ronaldo I think the point is that um Pirlo came in with this idea which was talked about heaps at the beginning in his thesis of oh I, I have an idea of how I think we should play football I think we should play a high pressing game I think that football is all about speed and 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 intensity and those things are not Cristiano Ronaldo at 37 years old they're just not the best one in the world whereas I think that Allegri if you tell him that Ronaldo is there next season we'll say okay we'll make a system that works with Ronaldo in it mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's just who he is um, and does but- that put Ronaldo as 
a traditional centre-forward, just a fox in the box centre-forward. I don't know about a fox in the box. I think he's yeah. happier but playing off someone, be, actually. I yeah. think I think Morata has a key role to play there as a sort of, yeah, as a foil for him. But but yeah, no, but I think this is very sensible, Juventus. I think as my, I, I think you have to accept the reality that Ronaldo is there and that he can be an asset if you use him correctly. He was Serie top scorer this year. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So that's not sort of suggesting Exa- exactly. he didn't do some yeah, so, but so you So what you don't do is hire a sort of fresh-faced young manager who wants to play a sort of Crofian sort of total football. That doesn't make any sense. Get, get a rugged a, a Good sort of pragmatic sort of uh, Allegri who can just find a way of making it work and then regroup next summer when he leaves. And Allegri did have one season with Ronaldo before and it wasn't amazing. It wasn't everything that Juventus hoped it would be and they went out of the Champions League to Ajax. But I think you still can sort of look at what's happened this season and say, all right, well, that season they had together, Juventus still won the league, wasn't particularly close. Um, And they actually probably had Ronaldo's best European night at Juventus, which was against Atletico Madrid. Mm, And mm. I think one of the biggest criticisms of Ronaldo this season, again, it's not that he hasn't done anything at all, because actually overall his numbers are pretty good, but he hasn't done it in the games when they most want him to, and he didn't do it in the Champions League. So if Allegri can just fix that, he'll already be doing okay. I I think it was our dear friend and OTC colleague Miguel Delaney who said something like... uh, Ronaldo today is almost like a sort of medieval siege weapon like he can be very effective but you do have to wheel him into place first and there is something if the, if Allegri can devise a system in which you get the ball to him near the goal very often I, as much as I diss him on this show I think he, he thinks he can score a ton of goals it's with players like this who have extraordinary abilities but also big big weaknesses you have to use them in the right way and this is the thing that wasn't happening this year I think Eight of the ten top clubs in Italy changed their manager over the course of uh, this uh, transfer window, if you like. And I, I wonder whether it's we less should... less of a waltz than a jitterbug. Well, I like that. Yeah, I do I'm like sorry. that. It's certainly a twist and shout. But do you, th- do you think that we should be concentrating on the eight who have left the ten, top ten clubs or should we be concentrating on the two um, managers of Milan and Atalanta that are still with their clubs which is the more important that's a great question that's a great question because I think naturally at this time of year we do concentrate on the new and we talk about it a lot but I think those two that have stayed Stefano Pioli at Milan and Giampiero Gasperini at Atalanta have done such incredible work and I think it's easy to obscure what Pioli did because the season didn't end as they wanted it to because they didn't win the league because they ended up sort of having to chase that Champions League spot down to the last weekend but Milan had the youngest starting 11s in Serie A this season and it wasn't particularly close um, so to finish in the top four for the first time in um seven years since they were last in the Champions League it's around that um, was remarkable and Gasparini has taken Atalanta into the Champions League for three seasons in a row which is just extraordinary people are sort of used to it now so they don't realise how extraordinary it is but that is absurdly um, impressive and especially when you consider that this season they did say goodbye to Papu Gomez which broke my heart but he managed to do that and to keep the team running so effectively and Yes, that could give both teams a leg up going into next season. I think still, come the start of next season, I expect Juventus to be the favourites in Serie A um, because Inter are going to have to make some cuts this summer. But the consistency at those two clubs is meaningful and 
the fact that those are the only two, the only two clubs in the top 10 that didn't feel compelled to make a change. I suppose other than Inter, who didn't choose to make a change, Conte wanted out. Um, but I think it speaks volumes to, to their managers and, and what they've done this season. Yeah, and it questions, it puts a question mark on the transition season that all the others are getting ready to yeah, rebuild. Yeah, I'm I'm tickled by Roberto Di Zabi going to Shakhtar, I have to say. Oh. I mean, that is a very OTC uh, <laughs> managerial move, isn't it? But but actually, he, I, I wonder if Juventus were still, uh, if they hadn't learned some lessons and were still trying to be a lifestyle entertainment brand and, and play very attacking football and stuff, maybe Di Zabi is someone they would have taken a punt on because his Sassuolo played so, you know, tremendously entertaining football this year. He's at, the Zerbi Sassuolo are wildly fun to watch. Often not necessarily, well, I couldn't always decide whether I think Deservi is a great coach or not, because sometimes you look at his team and you think you, you don't have to play on the razor's edge the whole time. You could choose to slow down a little bit and try to um, uh, play with some, uh, some chill, um, but they don't. They don't play with any chill. They just go for it constantly. And um, they play out from the back with players who are not Manchester City's <laughs> players, shall we say. They're not the players who are starting in Champions League finals. They're always trying to play out from the back. And he gave an interview just um, in the last couple of days because I had to do a sport where he gave a quote, which I think sums him up so perfectly, which he sort of said, in Italy, um, people are always talking about balance. Your journalists are obsessed with balance. When you say balance, all you seem to mean is um, if a team doesn't concede many chances, then that has balance. Well, what about if we create a ton of chances and we give up a ton of chances? Isn't that balance? And I just thought that's the Zerbi in a nutshell. He doesn't care if his team gives up the chances of their opponents to score six goals a game, as long as his team is creating the chances to score six goals at the other end. So... If you, if, you, if you win 4-3 or win 1-0, the goal difference is still plus one. Right. Um, so I, I think he's heaps of fun and I love his personal mindset which was look I had some offers in Italy and they weren't interesting to me going to Shakhtar and having a chance to do football my way which was apparently the thing that he was most concerned about and go play with a team that was in the Europa League semi-final that plays regularly in the Champions League yeah I want to go do that and there's some challenges I have to learn to speak to to lead training in English but I'm up for it and as um Lars said, this is a very on-the-continent story, I think. <laughs> and I hope that there will be chances to talk about it in the year coming up. I'm sure there'll be chances <laughs> to talk about everything. This certainly isn't the last waltz, as we know. Uh, but what does all of these, what do all these managerial changes bode for the season to come? What can we expect this season coming, Lars? Um, how, how different will football in Europe be um, as a result of all of these changes? Well... I feel like in one way it'll be more of the same because we've had a season now w with some caveats where we're all saying, oh, well, it's a different season or there's not as much time to, to rest. I mean, next season, at least we're back to a sort of normal schedule, but we're still in a situation where a lot of teams are not going to look exactly like what they want to look like and what they would look like in other summers. There are teams who are going to have to accept that they're stuck with some guys. Uh, there are teams who are going to have to accept that they can't sign the people they want. Uh, I, I think in the transfer window now, we're going to see a lot of loans. Uh, you're going to see a lot because the money's still not coming yeah, in. From no, the it's, no, no, everyone, and everyone's yeah. trying to reduce costs, and that's hard when you've signed all these contracts that you're stuck with. I suspect we'll see more sort of uh, Suarez style moves where sort of 
older players on big wages are actually being paid a bit of money to, to go away, uh, whether it comes back to haunt people quite as badly as it did for Barcelona remains to be seen. But it's going to be a slightly strange transfer window where I think creativity uh, on the side of, of people is going gonna, is gonna to be a big thing. And um, when you look around, you see there are, some, there are some clubs that have really good players and some really good young players as well who are falling apart because of finances like Lille and stuff. There aren't that many clubs who are out there to take advantage of that because there are not that many who have the money to spend. So, so it's going to be interesting in that regard. And I think um, I wonder what we've seen across the continent this year is that the sort of winning points totals haven't been super high. And I suspect there'll be more of that next season. I, I, I don't think we're going straight back to a season where teams are going to pick up, you know, 90, 95, 100 points anywhere because they're still going to be imperfect. But we also saw some kind of fun title races last this year because of it. And maybe we'll get more of that. We're in something of an impasse this week in terms of football games of the week to to suggest for listeners. Um, football is coming home partially, very soon, <laughs> very soon, partially, in any case. Meanwhile, though, you both have a game of the week uh, to recommend. Well, I obviously am myself most excited just to see Italy play Czech um, this evening. We haven't talked about Italy's spectacular squad announcement that went on for two hours on Rye. You need to explain more of this to me because I only saw clips on Twitter and it, they left me confused and worried. I think um, I, I'm struggling to, to even myself fully understand why Italy is quite so all in on this year. It's not that it's, they shouldn't be. I'm excited for the Euros. We're all excited for a big international football tournament. But it just seems like this year Italy has gone up another level. But the show that was put on on Rye was a two-hour extravaganza in which we had um, some sort of cross between a squad announcement and the San Remo Music Festival, which maybe some people are more familiar with now that Zlatan has gone and done his bit in it. But you had um, Roberto Mancini singing, you had the whole squad singing the national anthem together, you had more than one musical performance from different bands, you had a rapper Clementino who came on and got because he's from Naples, the Neapolitan members of the squad up and rapped with them and did a famous song of his, Cos, 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 and mixed their, um, mixed the, the players' names into his lyrics. It was extraordinary. And yet at the same time, as someone who has grown up with that culture of Italian variety show, it was very familiar at the same time. This sort of show, this sort of bizarre onstage extravaganza in which there are some men in suits and typically there would also be some showgirls because it's Italy and so they've got to do that. <laughs> and there'd be some singing, some of it possibly good, some of it really bad. And there'd be some gentle, just sort of awkwardness and embarrassment of people being made to sit still and, and wait while this sort of stuff drags on. Two hours, guys, longer than a football match. It was extraordinary. Um, but I have to say, as someone who lives in England, but is split nationality and is half Italian and hasn't been able to go to Italy in this last COVID extended period. All of it is making my heart hurt for wanting to be in Italy. I wish I could be back there and spend some time there. So I personally love it. I personally love this Italy squad. I'm really excited about it. I am excited about Italy against Czech this evening, but I'll give you um, another friendly to look out for, which is... Um, Belgium against Croatia. I think you've got World Cup semi-finalists against a team who I think are very much um, in the um, 
in the frame to win this Euros in my mind, Belgium. Even without Kevin De Bruyne, I think you've got a squad that has reached a certain level of maturity of players that are used to playing together at international tournaments. Romelu Lukaku coming off a magnificent season in which he finally feels empowered as someone who's won a league title. I think that's a really interesting game as well coming up this week. I can't remember what day it is, which is not helping me. Um, Lars, you do yours. That's fine. Um, I mean, first of all, since you get to I was, listen, okay, so we're all focused. <laughs> and I, I'm also, you say Italy are going well. I've, I've got Euro fever already. I'm kind of worried that I've gone early. I, I feel like the, my level of excitement for the Euros is where you want it to be a couple of days before kickoff because <laughs> uh, I've spent the week writing preview material and stuff like So I'm super hyped and, and reading, you know, reading the World Soccer Special Edition in the Garden and all the sort of stuff that you do. Um, so obviously we're, we're looking at the friendlies but at the same time, there is no cure for Erling Haaland fever. And if you have Erling Haaland fever, <laughs> Norway are playing Greece. So if what you think you want to spend your time on this weekend, it's water friendly between two teams that are not going to the Euros because you have Erling Haaland fever, then that, that is that is a thing. Uh, now, on a serious note, Spain are playing against uh, Portugal in a friendly on Friday night. And I think of the sort of pre-Euro friendlies, that's one I'm really interested in. Frankly, because I don't really know what the Spain team is going to look like. Um, I found that hard writing previews. Uh, like, what, what is their eleven going to be? Uh, I don't think we really know. And I think playing against Portugal, that'll probably be competitive enough that maybe we'll get some kind of idea of what that team will look like. Portugal, one of my sort of uh, int- interesting candidates to win the whole thing, in my opinion. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's that's one I'll be watching for sure. Sunday for Belgium, Croatia. Mm. And I'm a doctor, so I'll sort out your Erling. Oh, there's no cure. I, I, watched, I watched Norway Luxembourg one nil <laughs> yesterday, and that nearly cured it, but it didn't. <laughs> and if that didn't cure it, there is no cure. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.